Well, welcome to the Opium Den. I'm Daniel Williams. Well, this is our first show of uh, the new year. I hope everyone had a good time uh, on New Year's Eve. Um, wondering if everybody went outside and looked at the, the blue moon that we had. Um, very rare occurrence that we get a blue moon on uh, New Year's Eve. And it's even more rare and probably will not see it again in our lifetime for a blue moon to come on uh, New Year's Eve just as, they, as a decade changes. So it was a very interesting, uh, beautiful evening uh, down here in southwest Florida. Uh, it was chilly, but uh, I'm not complaining because the rest of my family live, live up in Ohio and uh, they, <laughs> they know what cold is all about uh, on, over, the, over the holidays. And my wife, uh, God love her, a patient woman that she is, being married to me for 20, uh, 23 years. She was up in Ohio, first New Year's that we've been apart in 25 years. But she was up in Ohio um, attending her nephew's wedding. He got married on New Year's Eve. And since Melissa was his godmother, it was paramount that she uh, attended the wedding. So we were, we were apart on this, uh, on this New Year's Eve. And um, unfortunately, Melissa uh, contracted the uh, H1N1 while she was up there, brought it home was uh, sick as a dog for a few days, and just as she started to turn the corner, um, <laughs> I went face down in the pavement, and I'm uh, starting to recover a little bit, and, uh, but I'm not a happy camper. I haven't, had a, haven't been able to smoke a cigar in three days, and all the drugs I'm taking don't get me high, so, <laughs> but poor, poor piddle for me is not the song that I'm trying to sing tonight. Um, I have some sad news in, in, in our family. I don't mean to bring anyone down, but it kind of puts things in perspective for me and, and my, uh, you know, poor, poor pitiful me walking around the house for the past three days. But my nephew, uh, and his, and his wife, uh, have a two year old daughter who is just, just a joy to behold. And Brandy, my, my nephew's wife, I was diagnosed last week with breast cancer, and this coming Monday, she's going to have a uh, double mastectomy. And uh, Brandy's 35 years old. She's a nurse. And uh, just devastating news uh, for our family. So for all of you out there listening, uh, send some karma. And if, you're, if you pray, say a prayer for, for Brandy that... This Monday's, this coming Monday's surgery uh, works out well for her. So, the first show of the new year. Um, I got to tell you, I really, I really uh, debated whether to broadcast tonight because of the way I felt. But uh, I had to soldier on because we have, we are honored this evening to have a return guest inside the Opium Den. Uh, Randall H. Miller. Uh, many of you uh, know Randy. Uh, you've downloaded our uh, our first interview uh, multiple hundreds of times, and uh, Randy's a pretty smart fellow. He's a college professor and a blogger, obviously. He has a master's degree in diplomacy and international terrorism, and his bachelor's was in uh, criminal justice. Um, he served as both an enlisted man and an officer in the U.S. Army. That's a kind of a trick not too many military people perform. But he served uh, in both the 2nd Infantry Division in South Korea and the 82nd Airborne. And uh, Randy blogs regularly about progressive politics and terrorism at RandallHMiller.com. And Randy currently uh, resides in Massachusetts. He used to do his bidding down in the uh, Dominican Republic. God only knows why he came back up to the frozen tundra, but I think uh, marrying and his beautiful wife uh, was uh, had a lot to do with that. So we're going to have Randy uh, Randy on for the whole hour. Randy is going to uh, give us his take 
on uh, all the recent events uh, with the panty bomber and uh, the uh, the massacre at Fort Hood. And also he has some interesting uh, insights on what we have been able to uh, put, for the first time, put uh, al-Qaeda and uh, drug running uh, in, this, in the same sentence and uh, show a direct correlation. So like I said, we're honored to have... Uh, to have Randy back inside the opium den tonight. And uh, because, uh, because of uh, calling and, and doing live with Randy, we can't take inbound calls here. But uh, if you would like, you can go to uh, on my homepage there. You can email, send us an email if you have a question or a comment. Or you can call me uh, on my trusty little iPhone here. I don't normally give out my private number, but like I said, these <laughs> these drugs have got me a little goofy, but not the kind of goofy that I like. But you can call me at 239-478-0005, or you can go uh, on uh, on Facebook, uh, Randall H. Miller, if you are a friend of Randy, or if you are a friend of mine, uh, pop in there and uh, and let us know uh, what you're thinking, or if you uh, if you have any questions. Um, <laughs> excuse me. Um, I'm probably going to do that a, <clears throat> more than a few times tonight. I've been sucking on Hall's mentholeptus lozenges, trying to suppress this cough. Um, heroin would work a little better, <laughs> but like I said, uh, the drugs they're giving me are not the fun kind. Not that heroin is a fun drug, but it certainly does suppress uh, the respiratory system and does a pretty good job of knocking a cough out. So we're going to have, uh, hopefully, a very good show for, for everyone tonight. Uh, we're competing with the uh, Alabama-Texas Tech game, and uh, we know that uh, football is a pretty big deal out there, but for those who would rather have uh, listened to uh, stimulating conversation and uh, original thought versus uh, football, uh, you're at the right place. But if you are a regular listener and flipped a coin and decided that, uh, fuck the opium den, I'm going to watch football, that's okay because you can always uh, download the show from our archives. It takes about 48 hours for my uh, tech guru to uh, do whatever magic he does in the back office and drop it into the archives. It's also available uh, from iTunes. Just go to the opium den on iTunes and you can download it there. So... Uh, for once, you can have your cake and eat it too. Watch the football game and uh, and listen to uh, Randy tell us what's going on in the <coughs> excuse me in the world in the world of terrorism. And like I said, if it was anybody but Randy, we would be dark tonight. But uh, I have a lot of respect for Randy, and uh, we're going to get him on the phone here in, in, in just a couple of minutes. Uh, one other little update. Um, I've always spoken about our sweet Bahama, our 11-year-old chocolate lab, and uh, she has recovered very nicely from her hematoma surgery. And uh, she does like this cold weather. Um, if it feels good on her bones, she jumps in the pool after we play tennis out in the... Uh, out in the cul-de-sac every morning, and uh, seems like she just really perks up in the in the cooler weather. And then when she jumps in the pool, which is like really really cold because we don't heat the pool anymore. I mean, we love our dog, but fuck, you know, eighty bucks a month to heat the pool for her with the coat that she has just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But Bahamas doing great uh, for all of you uh, out there who, who uh, send uh, sent her your regards when she had her surgery. Things are great. So what we're going to do, uh, we're going to uh, give Randall a call and uh, get this evening going. Thanks for stopping in and listening in, and here we go. I think we're going. Oh, there it is. The Skype machine is working. <clears throat> Daniel. Randall, how are you? 
How are you, sir? Well, are you, you hanging in there? You well, sound like you're struggling a little bit. <laughs> well, trust me, brother. If it wasn't for you, <laughs> we would be dark tonight. But yeah, I, like I said, uh, I'm hanging in there, and I really wanted to uh, to share with our listeners uh, your insights and what you've uh, been able to put together on some of this terrorism stuff. And great, good to and, be here. And uh, we, you know, what I didn't uh, what I didn't uh, tell folks is that. Uh, we have a difference of opinion when it comes to um, how these fellows should be tried, our panty raid mm-hmm. bomber, whether she should go to a criminal justice system or a military tribunal. I'm okay. of the opinion that military tribunals are it, and you're of the opinion that criminal justice system works, and I'm going to defer to you and ask you to, as we move along this evening, to, uh, to convince me that I'm on the wrong track. Okay. I'll do my best. But I also know that you want to do it kind of give us an update on uh, a couple of other issues. So I'm going to rest my voice and open up another lozenger and pop it in and let you, uh, let you roll for a couple of minutes. Okay, great. Uh, I wanted to back up a little bit for those folks who didn't hear us chat last year when we talked about the connection between Islamic terrorism and the global drug trade. Uh, so for those who don't know, the terrorist groups around the world used to get money from a number of different sources, but state sponsorships probably one of the biggest ones. I don't know how old your, your audience members are, but I'm sure most of them remember Muammar Gaddafi because he's still around. Right. He's just not, not quite as loud as he was in the 70s. He was probably one of the premier state sponsors of terrorism, gave money to pretty much, and exported it as well, gave money to pretty much anybody who would take it. His intelligence agency was responsible for the Lockerbie bombings, and so on. And didn't his uh, didn't his son Hannibal just give uh, Beyonce like two million dollars to shake her booty and sing a couple that? songs? I saw that too. <laughs> yeah, he paid her a few million bucks to play at his uh, at his birthday party. I think yeah. somewhere in the Caribbean. Anyway, yeah. I just you know a little side. They might want to do do a little bit of research before they take those gigs. But hey, yeah, um, really, what's her deal? You know? Yeah, pretty stupid. Yeah. But, anyway, go ahead. Uh, okay. In in addition, the Soviet Union was always good for a few bucks. But at the end of the Cold War, that money sort of dried up. In addition, with you know, the forces of globalization, we get a lot better at tracking money and tightening up on, on money transfers, etc. So the bad guys, the terrorists, they find themselves in uh, a difficult position. They need money. You know, they need an ideology to keep their organizations going, but they also need money. can't operate without it. So they made the shift into organized crime. When they get into organized crime, they have a number of choices. They can do piracy. They can do uh, credit card fraud. They can do cyber crime. They can do, you know, uh, prostitution, gambling, a whole number of things. Anything that, you know, La Cosa Nostra does or the mafia. But the most profitable of those, as we know, is the drug trade. It's probably about a half a trillion dollars now, which is more than the GDP of Spain. And I think you had said before, it's probably creeping up on eight or ten percent of of you know the global market. That's global correct. GDP, yeah. If you will. Yep. Okay. So. Even if you get a little piece of that pie, you're doing pretty well. So a lot of them have transitioned into that. And I don't know if you recall, it's in North Carolina, I think it was, there were some folks from Hezbollah who were buying cigarettes in North Carolina, sending them or selling them in, in, in New York, and right. they could make one, one or two million in a truckload. And eventually they moved into drugs. But we need to sort of make the distinction here. Terrorists don't make money from drugs. They make money from drug prohibition. Now, I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir on that to you. But, but that's I a good distinction. A that's a very good distinction, and it's not made enough, so I'm glad you're making it. Okay, well, absolutely, because a lot of people would say, oh, well, Islamic terrorists, Al-Qaeda, they're into drugs now, too. Well, that's you know, just more reasons for us to beef up the prohibition on drugs and eventually eradicate you know, drugs from the earth, which we know is never going to happen. So they make their money from the prohibition of drugs. And uh, as a side note here, we're not just talking about Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, Hamas, the, the terrorist groups that, you know, sort of roll off the tongue and everybody knows. We're also talking about groups like the PKK, which is the Kurdish Workers' right. Party in, in Kurdistan. And they, interestingly enough, they're a Marxist group and uh, innovators of suicide bombing as well. But they will charge a toll, as many of these folks will, uh, if there's something moving through their territory. So... Sometimes these guys aren't necessarily putting their hands on the drugs or even distributing, but if they, and this is where the connection to the mafia and organized crime is, is really comes through, is they'll say, okay, if you want to come through, pay toll to the troll, you give us a piece of it, and we will protect the shipment as it goes through. You know, classic organized crime. But 
since the last time we, we spoke, a couple of interesting things have happened. In November, in the desert of Mali, there was a Boeing 727 that was discovered that had been torched. They don't know if it crashed and then it torched or if they landed it and they torched it for some reason, but bad guys probably lit it on fire and ran away for one reason or another. It's interesting for a couple of different reasons. Number one, this plane, they, they believe, originated in Venezuela. Hugo. Two, <laughs> our yeah, boy exactly. Hugo. Hugo Chavez, who, our, our, our good friend down there, who, as we'll, you're going to see in a minute here, he's no longer the little nuisance that we all used to look at him and just say, oh, he's just an obnoxious loudmouth. He's much, much more dangerous than that. This plane is just one piece of that pie, one piece of evidence against him. But the plane also had uh, somewhere around three tons of cocaine on it. Mm. And as anybody knows, the bigger the shipment gets, the more dangerous it becomes, but the more attention you draw to yourself. Not just from you know, the law enforcement folks who are coming at you, but from other cartels, people want a piece sure. of it. You, just, you, you, you draw attention to yourself that you just don't want. So I would argue that if a plane is taken off from Venezuela with three tons of cocaine on it, there's a good chance somebody very high up in their government had to have something to do with it because these flights just don't get cleared to come and go. Um, a little bit more evidence against uh, Chavez, and this is written up by a, a fantastic counterterrorism expert named Douglas Farah. He has a blog called douglasfarah.com, and he's also one of the major contributors on uh, counterterrorismblog.org, which is an excellent site. But Chavez, just in the last couple of months, he had a gathering of terrorist organizations in Caracas. And that included not just the FARC, which you would, you would, uh, you would right. expect from being right next door in Colombia and his connections to them, but ETA from Spain, who are the Basque separatists, right. Communist, Communist Party of El Salvador, some folks from the Red Brigade, if you remember them, sure. uh, Sendero Luminoso, which is the Shining Path, and people from other parts of the world who you probably wouldn't recognize the names. But he had them there, you know, for a, a, a love and tug, where they all got together <laughs> and talked about whatever it is they all have in common. And he's, he's become pretty bold now with this stuff. He used to just sit back and, and sort of blab his, you know, run his mouth. And I think President Clinton's policy towards him in the beginning was, uh, you know, ignore him when he does or says stupid things and praise him when he does good things. And that's our, our strategy. And that worked, I guess, for a little while. Bush pretty much ignored him as well, but we never really put our hands on him. We never really, contrary to his claims of, you know, he's constantly under an assassination plot, we've pretty much ignored Latin America, especially since 9-11. Well, do you think, um, that, do you think that Chavez was more, uh, more frightened of Bush than he is of Obama? I mean, you said he stepped up and become more, more visible and uh, more aggressive. Do you think I mean, that, that uh, it, he's lost respect? I think it's it's possible, but more than likely, no. I don't think he'd make a major distinction between the two. I think that's something that you know, you know, politics is creeping into everything here. That's something that those on the right would would definitely argue, though. And I guess they could make a case for it. But I think Chavez has become emboldened because he's been there so long, and he survived a coup attempt. And no matter what he does, nobody really does anything to him. And if you notice over the last year or two, he snuggled up really tight to the people um, that you just don't want to be close to. Ahmadinejad. Like Ahmadinejad right. is one of his best friends. Uh, North Korea as well. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. He, does, he didn't have any friends in the normal world, so he's snuggling up to some pretty bad characters. So that probably helps to embolden him as well. And he didn't have those relationships under Bush, at least not as overtly as, right. he, does, as he does now. But uh, that was a major. That was a major thing. This this next one though is is really big, and this was actually in USA Today on December eighteenth. Okay, right just, just back up a second, if you if you don't sure, mind. What happened to the three tons of cocaine? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'll put I'll put an inquiry in. Right, and let me know how that turns out. <laughs> okay, go ahead. December eighteenth. I'm sorry. All right, right before Christmas. Uh, and this is the first time this has happened, we were able to grab three guys from al-Qaeda and peg them to the global drug trafficking trade. And this happened in Africa, again, which is, I'm, I'm telling you, this is a growing front in the war on terror. It's a growing front in a lot of different areas. But they were, they're, all three of them are in their 30s. They're from Mali. And we picked them up in Ghana. 
And how we picked them up is we had DEA informants and DEA agents there who were representing as if they were from the FARC, from Colombia, saying, hey, we're going to bring some shipments of cocaine through here. And the Al-Qaeda guys convinced that they were speaking to FARC members, said, hey, you know, you know no problem, we'll, we'll protect these shipments as they come through, we'll get them up through Mali, through the desert, up to northern Africa, where Al-Qaeda has a, a pretty, pretty solid presence, the Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, they're called. And we'll get it up there, and we'll make sure it gets distributed out through Europe. These guys were put on a plane there in New York facing federal charges now. But it's the first time we've actually been able to, to link Al-Qaeda to this. Well, um, you know, that, that's very cool, but it seemed like the story kind of ran up the flagpole and, and went down pretty quickly. Do you think that's, uh, there's much going on in the background of this, or it's just Obama's way of poo-pooing uh, uh, terror connections to, uh, to drug trafficking? Honestly, I don't, I don't think politics had much to do with it. I think everybody was just sort of sidetracked with Tiger Woods. <laughs> you know, it, it was a little, it was a little tough to avoid Tiger. It still is. That's um, where the cocaine it, ended up, right? And, and uh, yeah, and and honestly, I don't think terrorism news gets the attention of the public unless there's a big bang, or a unless near there's big an explosion, bang. right? Or a near big bang, like the you know the crotch bomber, the panty bomber. I don't know mm -hmm. what you called him, but 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 this guy uh, from Nigeria. So I don't think it was it was swept aside because you know USA Today is a pretty well read or uh, newspaper and I'm sure it was in a bunch of different outlets too. I know it was on the counterterrorism blogs across the internet, but uh, I, I don't know why it didn't get a lot of play. Was it was it just was it just was it just me or I've seen the pictures of his of his underwear so many times. It looks like they were a little soiled. Do you think that when they uh, when they came down on him in the cabin, he might have let loose a little? I mean, those pictures are pretty pretty rude. You know what I keep thinking though, as I keep thinking of that story of this guy in particular, is Al Qaeda ain't that stupid, and they were sort of embarrassed after the Richard Reed, you know, failed shoe bomber because the not because any sort of system worked or security, but because the passengers basically kicked his ass, and that's what happened in. in this time as well. I, I just don't... I, I'm wondering if... And you see pictures of this guy. He's a young kid. He's not particularly, uh, you know, astute, I guess. But I'm wondering if they tossed him out there as sort of a decoy. And I have nothing to back this up. That's, uh, that's where I was going to go next. I, do, do you think it, he was just it, like a, a diversion? Well, look. Look how easy it is to divert us. We're going to chase our tails and talk about, you know, whether people should remove their panties before they get on a flight. We're going to do this forever, and then we're going to debate it, and we're going to talk about profiling and body scans and all that. And meanwhile, the, the bad guys have moved on. So it wouldn't surprise me. And, you know, the, the corollaries with the, with the drug trade are striking as well. They do the same thing with drug mules. They may have five or six drug mules planned to go on the same flight. You know right. what they'll do? They'll call and they'll drop a dime drop on one of their own drug mules. Exactly. So the, so the DEA or Customs or whoever grabs them at the airport, and when they're busy with them, meanwhile, the other five walk through. Well, so like I said, I have nothing to back that up. It's just sort of a hunch. No, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me, but what, what, do you think is the, what do you think is the deal about whether he had a passport or not? And then this Indian man who helped facilitate him on. The well-dressed man. Yeah, the well-dressed man. Is there any credibility to that? Is there any substance to that or... What? It is, you know, I wish I had it in front of me, but there was a, a passenger who was there through the whole thing, was, uh, you know, sequestered with everybody. Who yeah, had, his, been, a lawyer. lawyer in yeah, his life. The, the lawyer. He's been blogging about this, and he's saying, hey, the government's changed stories several times about this. Um, that, that part disturbs me, is how the hell does somebody get, you know, through two flights on the United States through several different airports without a passport? I yeah, mean, how do you talk? How do you talk your way? Out? It's not like you're getting carded at the liquor store and you're saying, right. "Hey, man, come on, look, look at me, I'm 40." I it, mean, it's a little different than that. This has to be tighter. Yeah, I, I've flown in and out of Amsterdam a number of times, and I was always impressed with with how they did things, and right. to and to have them fall down on the on the job with this with this situation is that in itself is is a little suspicious to me. I mean, getting on the airplane without a passport, and whether that's true or not. But this fellow that keeps blogging, he was on the news tonight. And, you know, I guess image is everything in the marketing world. But this guy should have, should have wore a ball cap or something because he's got plugs 
fresh plugs yeah. all over the top of his head. He's got he's got like a shaved head deal going, but he's got yeah. fresh plugs all over the top of his head. And I don't want to get letters or phone calls about plugs of guys out there, but you know what? It's it's like this is the this is the guy that sees it all, and you look at him and go, man, bad bad plug job. But what 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 do you think about that? I mean, do you think he got on without a a passport? I I would only be speculating. However, at this point, it wouldn't surprise me when you look at all of the red flags. And there's some great people working in our intelligence services. There's some great people at Homeland Security. But the fact that this guy's father, uh, a well-respected yeah. banker, you know, went to the embassy, told the CIA, "Listen, my son has been radicalized. He's in Yemen." Another red flag. Um, you know, and the reason he had gone to the embassy was because his son had called him and said, hey, this is my last phone call, Dad. They're going to take away my SIM card. Well, you know, bells go off. Uh, there were just too many, there were too many flags. So the fact that he flew without a passport, yeah, sure, why not? You know, you know it's, it sort of fits with the rest of the story. Yeah, I mean, nothing that surprised me. Now, Keith Oberman, who I can watch for about 90 seconds as long as 60 you, you make you make it longer than me. Yeah, well, I was, I was going to say as long as 60 seconds, 60 seconds is a commercial. But this right. asshole had the audacity to, to opine, and he did it in a very you know, clever way that he couldn't get uh, called on. But he suggested uh, or inferred that the CIA knew all about this and let him get on the plane and were willing to sacrifice 288 lives to get back at... Uh, Get back at Obama for the way he's treated the uh, the CIA, you know. And that's it, pure horseshit. It is, and you know they, that, laugh, that, they laugh at Glenn Beck, but at least that asshole knows he's crazy. And yeah. <laughs> and Keith Oberman, I mean, what a fucktard. Let me. Well, let me, I, I can. I can't watch either of those two. Oh, I'm five uh, minutes. Cause and that's they, it. They, yeah, because they, they they both drive me crazy. But I think if Oberman said that, that's mm-hmm. that's just as crazy as the nine one one truthers out there who say that, you know, on one hand, Bush is a bumbling idiot and he's incompetent, and on the other hand, he pulled off, you know, the greatest conspiracy of all time and, and somehow perpetrated 9-11 against us. It just doesn't, <laughs> they're idiots. Just people, they, you know, get girlfriends. <laughs> well, like I said, it's a, it's, a very, it's a very interesting situation how this guy was able to, uh, to move through all the checkpoints. And all, the, all these things are happening. Here we got another. I mean, I don't, I, I'm, I'm assuming that you travel on a fairly regular basis. I don't know what your opinion is of the, of the TSA agents. But here we have one, uh, was it Newark? A guy sneaks past the guy to go kiss his girlfriend goodbye or give her another kiss and shuts the fucking airport down for like six hours. I mean. Yeah, it's, it's the death of common sense. I know. I mean, again, it's not like, you know. A guy got into the movies for free. This is like TSA. This is supposed to be supposed to be our deal. And now they're going to put all these uh, these kind of scanners that can see through your clothes and everything. Mm-hmm. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to ask you because I, I haven't heard it one way or the other. But I'm curious. You know, I've seen them on TV and it's you know very revealing. But if a guy's got a bomb up his ass, are they going to be able to see that? Probably not. Okay. If that's Probably if that's not. where they're going to go next, <laughs> I'm going to quit flying because. If they're, if they're going to start doing cavity checks, I want a nice 18-year-old girl with small hands. <laughs> I'm not flying yeah. anymore. Yeah, you know, the, the, the TSA, I remember shortly after 9-11, I was flying, and as I was going through and they were checking the bags, two of the agents were just sort of small-talking next to each other. And I almost fell over when one of them said to the other one, you know, they were just talking about how much they hated the gig. And this woman said, yeah, you know, I, I used to work at a – at a bar and a restaurant, you know, I, I was a bar back and I bust tables and I made a hell of a lot more money than I made doing this. <laughs> Jesus And I Christ. thought, oh my God, this is, this is what we've got. And I'm sure there are some, some good people working in there, but on the whole, they don't inspire a lot of confidence. And I don't see it getting better if they unionize. Which oh, that'll be the kiss about. of death, literally. I mean, wow, you want to kill the airline industry. Well, that's, that, that's the guy that they're holding up confirmation for to, to be the head of the TSA. Right. El, what's Elder Elrod or something? Is his? Uh, I, I I don't recall. But and and there, and there, there are six uh, GOP guys: Dement, uh, uh, McCain, and, and a few others that are holding him up because apparently it's been some time ago. But I think you know, fifteen or twenty years ago, he used his power as an FBI agent to do a uh, do a criminal background check on on his. Sister's ex-husband or something. Yep, you know. yep. Sixer, uh, ex boyfriend or husband or something. Like that. No, you know. you're right. You're right. And that's a, and that's a no go. And if that doesn't, 
completely disqualify him from that office, then, you know, what the hell is going on? Because it's, it's enough, it's, it's hard enough to stomach the tax cheats that are able to make their way through. But when somebody who should know better when it comes to security and privacy issues and things like this, that's just, that's complete abuse of power. Yeah, and he's big on unionization as well. So I hope he never sees the light of day and gets to, gets to the position because you're right. If they, if they unionize the TSA, forget that shit, brother. Yeah. It's not going to be any better than, uh, than it is now. It's not all, not all that great. Agreed. But, you know, it's interesting. If, if, if your listeners want to read more about this stuff, there's a guy, Jeffrey Goldberg, who blogs regularly at The Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a pretty smart guy when it comes to the security stuff, and he's you know looked at it closely since 9-11. And I heard him on NPR a week or two ago, and he was just you know he, he, speaking the truth, and he said, listen, we don't have security at our airports. It's not there. We have theater of security. We have something there. We have a show which is supposed to make people feel as if we're doing you know a, a secure job, but we're really not. It's, it's politically driven. We make stupid knee-jerk decisions, and it's supposed to make us feel better that we all take our shoes off or, or that they stop old, old ladies. Or if you recall, remember when uh, Al Gore was stopped? He was, pulled out, well, he was pulled out and given the extra security check, and afterwards he said, see, that's good, that's evidence that this is a good system and it's working. I was like, no, it's not. It's Jesus stupid. Jesus Christ. I mean, you, were the, you were the vice president of the United <laughs> States. I mean, you're, 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 I'm, you're not my favorite guy, but I'm pretty sure you're not going to blow up the plane. This is a waste of money and resources. Do you think any heads are going to roll? No. Nope. said that last week. I said, I got 100 bucks. says nobody gets fired over I thought that. It was, and, I thought and, it was and, 50 bucks. You, you upped it to 100? I'm, I'm, I'm upping it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was reading about that today. People were going on and on saying, you know, who, it, what the hell do you have to do to get fired in this administration or the last one? Is we, have, we have intelligence failures, but there's never any person responsible for it. Well, Whereas if you're, if, you're, if you're not flipping the burgers the right way or working the fryer later the right way at McDonald's, you get canned. Right. No questions asked. It's not a fryer later failure. It's an operator failure. Well, do you okay? You don't think anybody's going to, but no, you obviously believe believe someone should. And who do you think should uh, get fired? I, I, I you know, I, I can't answer that. I have to see a list of everybody who who had access to all that information but failed to put the dots together. Um, I would start. Let's start with somebody we both know, Napolitano. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have no idea why she's in that position. You know, to be the secretary of the treasury, you got to know a little something about money. To be the Secretary of Transportation, you got to know something about logistics. To be the Secretary of Homeland Security, you don't have to have any security background. In fact, she's, what's her background? She was a governor. She's mm-hmm. an elected politician. So she's, I guess, arguably good at running a government bureaucracy. But what the hell does she know about security? Well, obviously and nothing. And when she came out and said that. the system worked, that was uh, enough for me right there. Yeah, I think, I think she should definitely go. Um, I mean, again, I, you know, not being privy to everything, but and I, was sure. in, I was in the corporate world for 30 years. And when you it's when it's your team and the team, somebody in the team fucks up, you're gone. You know, it's yep, not that's it. you know the guy that fucks up, maybe give him another another chance, dependent upon but the guy who's in charge of the team. You're done. And that just tightens everybody's asshole up down the line and they go, oh, fuck, man, we better be mm-hmm. very, very careful. Man, if, no, if, nobody gets fired, but, you know, no matter what, nobody gets fired. When we look at the, uh, you know, abuse of detainees in the last administration, who gets fired? A couple of E-4s, you know, some sergeants, they get chaptered out, put in jail, but in the, in the generals, you know, maybe lose a star. I think there was somebody who, you know, got busted a rank, but, you know, it gets, gets pinned on the little guy. But in this situation, it's not even getting pinned on the little guy. No, everybody's walking. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not hearing of, of anything. They're just saying, okay, well, we need to tighten up the system. Well, I wonder if they would be that cavalier about it if this guy had been successful. Mm-hmm. Or then they'd be looking for somebody to scalp, right? Right. Well, speaking of scalping and, and, and bad hair plugs and ugly-fitting mm-hmm. rugs, Orzag, you know our uh, uh, Obama's budget guy, sure. P- Peter Orzag? It just came out today on the news, and this, and this guy, you know, he, he's got a funny-looking toupee, but he's got a love child. You're, you're hung up on hair today, huh? Well, yeah, a little bit, you know, I mean, because I, I think it's silly, you know. I mean, if you got hair, great. If you don't have hair, you know, live Go gracefully? It. Yeah, go, exactly, go gracefully. And he's got a, you know, a very, I mean, even on TV, it's an obvious that he's got a piece on. 
And uh, it comes out today that this Mr. Squeaky Clean guy, who I, I have a lot of respect for him. I think he's, you know, a brilliant numbers guy. But here he's got this love child that has just now uh, become public because he's going to get married to this other chick. I mean, what, what's going on up in, in the White House? I mean, is it really the, the gang that can't shoot straight or? It, it, it always is, though. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I mean really, I, I don't see that much difference between this administration or any of the administrations I could, since I became cognizant that we had a president. Um, I, I don't see that much of a difference. I think, you know, it's government. It's bureaucracy. They, they bumble just about everything. Yeah, I'm not saying I could do any better, which is why you don't see me in government. Yeah, but the fact is we wouldn't, we wouldn't do uh, any worse, I don't think. I mean, common sense goes a long way when, yeah, when but you're they, dealing they, with they, things. You know, when you get elected to office, the first thing they do is give you a lobotomy. Right. Right. And, of course, I think Bush got his before he was elected. I think he got it in Texas when he was, when, when, when he was the, the governor. What did you, what did you think of, of uh, President Obama's speech today? Didn't hear it. Oh, you didn't hear it? Well, you, nope. did, you didn't miss much. Um, I, I was kind of hoping that he would have something like uh, the speech he gave when he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, I, I actually thought that was um, a pretty good speech. But what, 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 what just kills me are, are all the, the liberals out there. And, uh, I mean, I don't, you know, there are good liberals and bad liberals. There are good Republicans and bad Republicans. And there are crazy libertarians and less crazy sure. libertarians. But... Um, if George Bush had received the, the Nobel Peace Prize right, and right. celebrated by sending 30,000 more troops to the Middle East, they'd have been over, all over his shit like, like crazy. And here, yep. you know, yeah, they would have been on top of Yeah, them. I mean, all these pictures of Bush with the Hitler mustache from the left that, that were just castigating him, just something mm-hmm. terrible. And they look, at, right. they look at Obama's, oh, that's cool, no problem, yeah, no big deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, what the fuck? Well, well, yes, I, I would say that the Hitler mustaches, I've seen quite a few on Obama as well. So I think you get Looks the, better the on him. fringe. Yeah, you get the <laughs> kook fringe on, on both sides. And it just sort of, it's, I don't even have time for it. Those who, I was not a fan of Bush, but those who would say, oh, the fascist, here it comes, we're losing all our rights, and he's, you know, horrible, worst thing since Hitler. I was like, really? Don't you think we have a long way to go before we get there? And on the same token, the people who are all over Obama, you know, for this health care thing, that's it, brown shirts, Nazis, you know, because Hitler was, was, you know, so right. well-known for his health care policy. Well, I, you know, I listen to all... It, it you know, doesn't make any sense to me. When I, when I go and speak on college campuses, I have a lot of, a lot of young kids tell me that, uh, you know, George W. Bush was the worst president in history. And I yeah, said, probably well, not. No, I said, you know, you, you can think what you like, but... For many of them, they were like, Bush was the first president that they really even knew about, you know, because these right. kids are 18, 19, 20. I said, I, They're I, also in college, yeah, Bush. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, hello. And I tell them, you know what, you know, you think George W. Bush was the worst president in history. I said, I lived through Richard M. Nixon, and Nixon makes Bush look like a Boy Scout, uh-huh. in, in, in my opinion. I mean, I, you know, in 19, I was 18 and 68 when I first became politically aware and tried to stay on and in, uh, in touch all along and i think uh, richard m nixon was uh, was was a far more dangerous president than uh, than george bush but anyway that's just uh, just a sidebar but everybody is giving uh, president obama just way way too many passes way he's too a, many he's passes. getting a lot of passes but he's he's also getting a lot of criticism that that started in bush's second term but haven't re- didn't really come to fruition because it's so technologically based, you know. I mean, you can you can legally stalk the president on uh, Politico has a 44 blog where they have his entire itinerary throughout the day. He's left the office. He's done this. He's done that. And literally every single word they say, every place they go is recorded. Um, if if that was around during JFK, I, I think our memories of him would be much different. Oh shit. Just all we need was just was just one text message or or yeah. uh, or. Uh, <laughs> it's me. It's me, Tiger. Yeah, change, right. your, change your name up there. Marilyn, it's JFK. Oh man, we're in trouble, baby. <laughs> take take those pill, take those vitamins we sent over to you. Yeah. But okay, here's here's I want to move on a little bit now. I I, I don't I know um, a few people that are very much into terrorism and and and, and follow it as closely as you do, and I've. 
and I and I read a lot of the uh, the, the sites that you uh, tell me to look at. And my my question is how can, how can someone um, as as brilliant and in, intelligent and incisive as you are on terror, terrorism uh, be wrong about the incremental approach to drug drug policy reform? I, I knew you were buttering. Me up <laughs> there. Um, the incremental approach. Yeah. This, um, for those who are just tuning in for the first time, can you give them a little background on yeah, that? I, like, you, you, you and I are sort of diametrically opposed on this. You would repeal all drug laws immediately with the stroke of a pen. Yes, I would. Okay. I am of the opinion that decriminalization and legalization of marijuana as a first step would be better. Now, why are you against it again? Well, because I'm, my, my biggest fear, and, and I don't think it's, uh, it's irrational, uh, my biggest fear is that for, for those who are fighting for incremental um, using medical marijuana, not just recreational, but using medical marijuana as a, as a foot in the door towards full repeal, and that's what all the drug policy guys have told me, Ethan Nadelman, mm-hmm. Norm, uh, St. Pierre, Normal, and all these guys, sure. Rob Campia. I'm afraid that it's not going to be our it's, it's not going to be our foot in the door. It's going to be the only thing we get, because okay. a lot of a lot of individuals believe that well we'll get uh, we'll get marijuana you know legal across the land we'll, we'll get that and then we'll move on and we'll get the rest of our agenda taken care of. And they think that the prohibitionists are just going to roll over and play dead when this happens. Mm-hmm. And the biggest problem I believe we have with the incremental approach is once we do, I mean, let's make the assumption that it doesn't take another 50 years to get marijuana uh, legalized in the United States, but let's assume that it does become law of the land. These guys that are pushing for full repeal as a second act, they're going to have to face the prohibitionists who are rightfully going to challenge them and say, you guys, we, you guys told us all along that medical marijuana was not... Um, a foot in the door towards full legalization, and now you uh, are lying, and we'll be we'll the Trojan be, horse. Right? Yeah, we'll be forced to defend our past actions, and at the expense of our of our future ones. And the prohibitionists will actually be right because they are right that we are using medical marijuana as a Trojan horse towards full legalization. And I have talked to every single drug policy leader out there, and I've asked them to explain to me where I am wrong in that, and I'm going to ask you, where do you think that I am wrong in that? Do you think that the prohibitionists will just give up and say, okay, well, they beat us, you know, and open the door to everything, or do you think they're going to double down and make it even that much more difficult to keep the gains that we've made, let alone making uh, future gains? I think it will be very difficult for them to double down when you look at the evidence. And this is why I am in favor of the incremental approach. Because I think that as you legalize marijuana, as they did here in Massachusetts when I was still living in the Dominican Republic just a few months before I moved back, they had question two on the ballot. And anything less than an ounce or something like that is decriminalized. And it passed overwhelmingly. And now we're, you know, 14, 16 months later, and I think that the prohibitionists are looking and saying, okay, it wasn't the end of the world. Nothing happened. There might have been a little bump, and I don't know if there's any data on this, in usage, but it didn't change anything. The skies didn't open up, uh, you know, earthquakes didn't swallow us up, and it wasn't that big a deal. And that they will learn that that was probably the way it would be with total repeal, is that if we legalized all drugs overnight, I wouldn't run out and do heroin tomorrow. I don't do it because I'm just not interested. I don't, it's not because it's illegal. That doesn't really matter. That hasn't been able to stem the flow. But I, I think you have to sort of take baby steps with it and let these people know, because they think it's the, you know, it will be the end of the world. When they see that it's not, that's when they'll loosen up with the rest of the repeal. Yeah, but now, but what, what drug will you champion next? I mean, in your, in your scenario, let's assume that the, the use of marijuana, both recreationally and medicinally, I mean, if it's recreational, then medicinal becomes moot. But let's just say the use of marijuana is law of the land. What would be your strategy? What would be the next drug that you would champion? I honestly, I can't, I can't answer that because I've never thought about it. And we're, you know, I, I would support the repeal of all uh, drug prohibition, but it's not my issue. It's not my, I'm not, I'm not an expert on it like you are. So I don't know what I, I would probably support whatever the, uh, you know, the powers to be in the, in the anti-prohibition movement would be behind. You know, I'd leave that up to the experts. 
but I, I recall a week or two ago you were saying, you know, those, those against the legalization of marijuana were saying, no, this is just their Trojan horse. You know, if we let them get the, that nose of the camel under the tent, then forget it uh, with, with uh, medical marijuana in California. And I think you said, and damn it, they're, you know, they're right, because you, you go to any doctor there and you got the sniffles, you have a sprained ankle, anything, he can write you a prescription for marijuana. Actually, it's a recommendation. Would... They don't write prescriptions. Okay. Well, that's, okay. that, and that's okay. a good point that you're making. What's ha- what, for people outside of drug policy reform, I mean, we, we get into the minutia of it all and we, we can talk till people's eyes glaze over. But the majority of Americans, you know, medical marijuana for sick people, okay, I'm all for that. But there's, mm-hmm. a, there's an undercurrent backlash that's starting to form in some states, uh, in, in California a little bit, but in the states that don't have medical marijuana on the books yet, they're being directed to look at California and they're being told mm-hmm. medical marijuana was supposed to be just for very sick people. And now mm-hmm. look what's happening in California. Everybody is smoking marijuana. If that's what you want to happen in, in Idaho, then let's, mm-hmm. then let's go with medical marijuana. But if you think right. that California is, is showing how the system is abused, then let's go, let's go much slower and, and vote this initiative down. That's the, that's the problem that, that I see. And I have some friends out in California that are in drug policy reform that are starting to go, you know what, it could get ugly. And that's, and that's, but you know what? I, yeah, I would argue. I would argue that that doesn't work against us. That works for us, because when they say, "Oh, see, it was supposed to be for really, really sick people," and now they're writing these prescriptions for everybody, I would say, "Okay, good." And so now you got the whole state, and everybody's got a prescription for marijuana. Did anything change? Did your crime rate grow up? No. Okay, so what's the big deal? But it did. But and then did they it go down? Hope, but it didn't go right, down. Right. It probably probably goes down. But I I would say the more they write those scripts, the better, because they could say, look at all these prescriptions, and these people aren't terminally ill. I would say, okay, so what? What was the side effect of that? So you think that the Did any of the things that you predicted happen? Well, what they they predicted with medical marijuana was that everybody's going to get a recommendation for this. And I'm not so sure that, uh, you know, the majority of people, especially in middle, middle America, are going to go along with the wink and a nod approach, like, yeah, we were just joking about this. This is... This is what we really want. We want everybody that wants to smoke pot to be able to smoke pot. And, oh, by the way, cocaine is not nearly as bad as you've been told either. Mm-hmm. I think right. that the you know, middle America, I mean, the, the, the coast, they, they're in on the joke. But the people in Kansas and places like that, when they're being told that the medical marijuana recommendations are being categorically abused, I, I think that's going to give give them pause. I don't think they're going to go along with uh, with the joke. I could be wrong. I, I, I would right. love to be wrong. But... Well, the solution is, is don't have a system in which you need a prescription. <laughs> you know? and, and and then middle America, you know, hopefully, I think you're you're absolutely right. You you characterized it perfectly. That you know, the left coast they kind of get the joke, and they weaseled their way into it. But you know, they're sort of the guinea pigs. The rest of the country will hopefully one day have an adult conversation and look and say, okay. That's the way they did it. We have other arguments. It's just, it's just a stupid law. Why don't we just repeal it entirely? And you don't need a prescription for it. You, know, you certainly don't want this stuff getting in the hands of kids and you know, treat it more like a public health issue like you do smoking cigarettes or drinking a beer. Well, prohibition allows it to be placed into the hands, uh, to the hands of children. Right, There's I agree. No, no restrictions. I, ab- I absolutely agree. As long as we have prohibition, then all of those decisions are up to the drug dealers. Where they're going to sell it, how much they're going to sell it for, who they sell it to, all of that. And I, I'm preaching to the choir now because this is your area. No, but, yeah, no, that, but that's all right. I, you know, I, I, I admire your your intellect and your ability to, to you know to think through an issue, and uh, I, I've yet to have anybody really convince me that uh, everything is going to be okay, Dan. Just you know, go along with with uh, with the program and. We're gonna right. we're gonna move this thing forward. I mean, there is still vehement opposition to medical marijuana. You know, we have it in 13 states, and it's taken 14 years to get it in 13 states. Another mm-hmm. another uh, argument that I make that has really yet to be um, refuted. If you look at the rest of the world, you have the Netherlands, which has the longest track record in, in uh, relaxed drug laws, and it's just cannabis mm-hmm. there, but since 1976, 77, they've got the longest track record. Portugal, in 2001, decriminalized the personal amount possession 
of every single drug. I mean, heroin, methamphetamine, crack, ecstasy, LSD. Yeah, I didn't know that. Since, since 2001. And just recently, um, Mexico has gone the same way, same route. Mm-hmm. Now, in those three countries, the, the change in drug policy was not brought about by a grassroots uh, organization for compassionate medical marijuana use. The, mm-hmm. this, these issues were decided by governments who sat back and said, you know what, recreational drug users po- pose little, if any, true risk. The violence and the, and the corruption and everything is in the, is in the trafficking and the distribution. So mm-hmm. we're going to leave the little guys alone, and we're going to try to focus on, uh, on the trafficking. Now, in those three countries, all three countries, and I, I can speak with, the, with absolute assurance about the Netherlands. I can't about Mexico and, and Portugal. But when I'm in Amsterdam, when I, was, when I uh, gave, a, gave a talk over there, I spoke with uh, the couple of the uh, elected uh, officials there, and they told me point blank that they not only would they like to regulate and legalize m- the marijuana trade, they also want to legalize and, and uh, control the entire drug trade. But the reason that they're going about it in this fashion is that they are afraid that the United States and all the UN conventions that everybody has signed, they will come down on them like a ton of bricks, so they just look the other way. I'm assuming that Portugal has the same, uh, the Portuguese government has the same mentality, and I know that the, uh, the Mexican government, I, don't say, I, I won't say I know, but I would assume that the Mexican government would like to do the same. So these three okay. areas of the world came about their drug policy enlightenment, not from a grassroots uproar for medical marijuana. They came about it through a common sense and objective look at how uh, they were wasting resources and hunting down the regular user. So when I say that right. to my friends in drug policy, they, they look at me like, you know, like I'm a fucking alien. But, mm-hmm. you know, can't we learn from, the, from those individuals on how to, to move this forward? I mean, 14 years, 13 states... And they're still busting uh, grow houses, legitimate grow houses and dispensaries in in states where it's legal. That's why I believe that the the, uh, incremental approach is a losing proposition. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we agree to disagree. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Whom dare, Frankie? Pregnant pause. Pregnant pause. Well, there's there's also uh, just for me personally, I look at what's realistic and what's not. Legalization of marijuana, I, see, I could see that nationally legalized in five years. I don't think that's outside the scope of anything. But 100 total bucks. Repeal, 100 bucks. Total, <laughs> total repeal of drug laws opens up cans of worms, not just for the domestic United States, but for our foreign policies. We pump billions of dollars into other countries to help them fight this, you know, quote-unquote, war on drugs. There are people locked up you know, all over the world, put to death in Singapore, et cetera. Now, all of a sudden, we go ahead and say, hey, you know what? We've been wrong over the, over the last 50 years or, you know, 100 years, whatever it is. Uh, we're we're going to change that and just legalize everything. I, I, I think we would run into public relations nightmares. Just, it, and, and that's not an argument. I know that's not a good argument for prohibition. But in, in the political reality of it, I, I think is such. Well, here's, here's another argument that, that I hear from my drug policy reform leaders. They say, of course, we want to repeal drug prohibition across the board. We're doing marijuana first because we don't believe the American people are ready to have the discussion. And I say, okay, so what about the, the, the two most recent Zogby polls that show over 70% of the American public believes the drug war has failed. Not that it's failing, but that it has right. failed. So why do they continue to hold on to the, to the misnomer that the public isn't ready for this type of discussion? When, 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 when they believe in polls about everything else, they say, well, now 46% believe marijuana should be legal. They tout all that shit as their way to go forward. But here's a very conclusive, two, two conclusive polls that say... Undeniable. The, the undeniable, exactly, that the, that the drug war has failed. So maybe, and it's true that maybe a small percentage of those people believe we're just not trying hard enough, but a large number of them believe in, in fundamental change, and a certain percentage of them are already on board for total repeal. 
So right. I don't want to sound, you know, too inside the the, the screw here, but I, I sometimes I look at my my friends in drug policy reform and I look at them like, you know what, this has been your career and you don't want to put yourself out of business. You're you're telling yeah, me yeah. That, oh, yeah. you're telling me that people aren't ready to hear this and I'm telling you you're not ready to tell them because you're right. afraid of, of of losing your livelihood. And they all that's but, I mean that's their and, deal. And I think that's valid. That is very valid. But I also think that there's a disconnect with these 70% out there that say, yes, prohibition has failed. I mean, anybody who would say it hasn't failed is, is just not paying attention. But then if you did a follow-up question and say, so, since it's failed, would you then repeal all drug laws? It's, oh, no, no, no. Why? Oh, because you know, only bad people would want that. You know, there's a well, I don't, I, don't know if that, I don't know if that's actually how it would – I don't know if that's actually how it would You don't, you don't it think so? Because – I, when I and, I and I think it's getting better, but when you have this conversation with people and you're and you're against the war on drugs and you're in favor of repealing these laws, there's always sort of a raised eyebrow of, oh, you must be a stoner. Well, actually, no, I'm not. But <laughs> that doesn't have anything to do with it at all. Um, so I think there is that stigma. Oh, you would you would repeal all drugs? Well, you you must want all drugs. You you know you get the Sean Hannity's of the world who have somebody on there, they won't have an adult conversation. He just asks questions like, so you would make heroin available to little kids? No, yeah, but, yeah, but, but, yeah, but see, the, when, when, when you, you, you're making a very good point here. When Hannity and all those idiots make that, that crazy assertion, like, oh, then you'd let uh, heroin be sold to the six-year-olds? No, you say, no, of course not. I want to stop heroin from being sold to six-year-olds because that's the situation we have now. Every mm-hmm. single politician... And, I, and I, as I get into this, I'm adamantly opposed to all of my friends in drug policy reform sucking up to all these politicians. You know, the, the access to them is now, is now their new success. They can't really get the drug laws changed, but they're getting access to all, the, to all of our congresspeople. And they're looking at access as success. I believe we should take the other approach and start calling out all of these leaders, all of our elected leaders, and ask them why they continue to vote for laws that put drugs in the hands of children. Why do they continue to vote for laws that allow the black market to, to, to control all of the, uh, the drug sales? Why, why do they continue to support a system that, that kills young people? Forget about sucking up to them and trying to get access. Start calling them out. That's that's what yep, I think I we agree. should do. And there was a there was a you agree? That was a pretty good one. In the Wall Street Journal on Monday, I don't know if you get that paper or not. Um, they had an article by Thomas Fleming on the uh, opinion page. Uh, it was titled "Prohibition: A Cautionary Tale," and it talks about primarily uh, alcohol prohibition and how things really got squirrely. Doesn't touch on on the drug thing, but I think it's an inferred message because mm-hmm. he called it, they called it a cautionary tale. The alcohol right. prohibition and the mm. and the Wall Street Journal. If you look at all the national paper, I mean national papers, you got USA and the Wall Street Journal. The rest of them are local: New York Times, LA Times, you mm-hmm. know, Chicago Tribune, mm-hmm. whatever. The Wall Street Journal has done more uh, more important uh, writing on the follies of drug prohibition and the drug war than any of the other. Uh, papers out there. Everybody hates mm-hmm. the Wall Street Journal. Like, I mean, there's a bunch of fucking conservatives, blah, blah, blah. But these guys have, take, have done the yeoman's work on exposing the, uh, the follies of drug prohibition. And I, I think they're on to something. And I think it's going to be the conservatives who, who take this issue and make it theirs as opposed to the, to the liberals. Because if you, if you look back at 2008, Ron Paul, who is just is just Ron Paul. I won't go into my thoughts mm-hmm. on Ron Paul, but the guy raised $37 million. And the two, yep. the two issues that he raised that money on, because I was traveling around the country campaigning for the libertarian spot, so I mm-hmm. met a lot of yeah, these young people. And I said, well, what, what is it about Ron Paul that, you, that, that makes it work for you that you're giving the money? And many of these young people had never been engaged before in the political process, and they were excited. And they said the two most important issues that they liked what Ron Paul had to say was he was going to bring all of our troops home, not just from the Middle East, but all around the world, right. And, right. He was, and he was going to end the drug war. Now, Ron mm-hmm. Paul didn't have a great 
a great plan, detailed plan, or anything. That's all he said. I'll bring all of our troops home and I'll end the drug war. And he raised $37 million on those two in, issues. In, in $25 denomination. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And that's commendable. It's extraordinarily commendable. But, but why is it that the, the Republican Party, Michael Steele, and some of these, well, I don't think he's all that bright, but some of these you know, bright guys in the Republican Party, what is it that they can't see that this issue resonates with young people, the people that they're trying to bring into their party, why doesn't the conservative uh, politician take that issue and run with it? I mean, it's not like they got to, you know, reinvent the wheel. Ron Paul did it, $37 million. And all these kids I talked to, they knew in their heart that Ron Paul didn't have a fucking prayer, didn't have a fucking prayer. Imagine how much money they could raise if they actually had the opportunity to vote for a presidential candidate that was going to, to end the drug you mean, war. Be huge. You mean like Bob Barr? Fuck Bob Barr. <laughs> <laughs> ooh, ooh, you, you hurt me. That, that hurt. I had to throw that out there. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm a sick guy, you know. I'm taking all these meds. I haven't been able to smoke anything, cigars or anything, and you had to just whelp me on the ass. But, yes, like Bob Barr, that, well, <laughs> we just haven't, we haven't spoken in a long time. But he did. He missed. A, he missed a great opportunity. He really did because uh, his his campaign manager uh, said to me that the, the last thing they wanted Bob Barr to be known as was the drug candidate. Mm-hmm. Well, what did he end up being known as? Nothing. So being the drug candidate would at least been better than than what he what he ended up with. And he just he, he blew a a significant opportunity, I believe. And I think that the conservative party, uh, the Republicans, should. Uh, should take a flyer on this because who's going to, I mean, who's the, the Democrats aren't going to give him a hard time. The Democrats are going to go, fuck me. And they stole our thunder. I mean, what's, 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 what's Obama going to say? These motherfuckers want to legalize all drugs. I mean, how dare them? And he's on video as saying the drug war is an utter failure. They're just going to beat They can beat him to the punch and own it. Own right. it. Right. Well, well, here it is, Randall, two minutes after 10. And my temperature's up, man. You got me going. I appreciate that. <laughs> Maybe you sweat out the last part of this goddamn fever I have. But I want to, I want to give you the, the last couple of minutes to, to tie it up. I also want you to, uh, I, I, in the intro, I talked about your, uh, your website, but I want, to give, uh, I want you to uh, take the next couple of minutes to say whatever you uh, would like to say and be sure to uh, advertise. Wh- whore yourself out, baby. I, I'm good at that. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I, it won't even take a couple of minutes. Just thank, thanks for having me again. I, I appreciate the, the platform, and I, I, I like talking to you. And, uh, you know, if anybody wants to interact with me more, I'm, I'm on Facebook a lot, Randall H. Miller, and I blog regularly at RandallHMiller.com, R-A-N-D-A-L-L. And, uh, you know, I hope to come back again. And one of these days I'll come in studio. Well, that would be good. But, but only, only if I get to bang the gong. <laughs> and I, I said, I said, gong, not bong, not bong. <laughs> oh yeah, we, Danny, Danny doesn't do bongs too uh, too easy. Wait, we got a we got a uh, uh, an email in here from my from my friend Brian Bennett. Brian, if you're still out there, I'm sorry I didn't get to this. Oh, we just sent ten minutes ago. He goes for crying out loud. Why not incrementally move coke and meth to schedule three? <laughs> well, and, and Brian, Brian is, is, is a yeoman out there. He's got a website that uh, is just, it, it's mind-numbing the statistics that he puts together and, and lays site, it out. Which in site a, is his? Pardon me? Which site is his? Uh, it's Brian, uh, Brian C. Bennett, two N's, two okay. T's. Or you can just put, you know, go into Google's anti-drug war. And he finishes mm-hmm. up here, the fear will not be abated by saying, see, look, it's all okay. Simply because yeah. the carnage involves everything but pot, for the most part, mm-hmm. and that's true. Because if we, if we, that's a good point, Brian. If we just legalize marijuana, the the violence isn't going to change. And there's a good argument to be made that I mean, I don't believe the cartels get sixty percent of the money from the pot trade, but there's a good yeah. argument to be made that if they do lose that revenue stream, they're not going to roll over and play dead. They're going to step up their efforts efforts with all the other drugs in their bag. And, and push them even harder so the violence could actually 
increased. And then when we have that scenario, the prohibitions, prohibitions are going to say, well, you told us things were going to be different if we gave you marijuana and nothing has changed. Maybe we should revisit and make marijuana illegal again because nothing has really, uh, really changed out of it. So Strong argument. Well, Brian's, pretty, Brian's a pretty strong fellow. Um, yes, you should check it out. His, his site's pretty good. Well, Randall, I, I, I want to tell you I'm glad that I uh, took a couple extra pills uh, this evening. And uh, this is more talking than I've done in the past three days. But I appreciate you, uh, you sitting My with pleasure. us. And, uh, you're a bright guy. And uh, I, I wish you all the best. And everybody out there should, should uh, check you out. And one day, uh, preferably in the wintertime, uh, you can come on down and come inside the studio and we can tell lies in person. Perfect. I'm there. Okay, Randall. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care, Daniel. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye now. All right. That was Randall H. Miller. Always good to talk to Randy. Smart fellow. And uh, always gets my, my juices flowing. I'm sitting here sweating like a pig. Uh, hopefully this will be sweating out the, the balance of my, uh, of my fever. And uh, I sure hope that... Uh, Tomorrow I can smoke something <laughs> and quit taking all these pills that don't uh, that don't do uh, don't do much for me. But um, there we have it. First show of the new year, um, and I just want to close by uh, reminding everyone to uh, say a prayer and send some karma out to my uh, to my nephew's wife Brandy, who was having a double mastectomy on on uh, on Monday. So. Uh, Let's, let's, let's throw some karma together for her because she's a beautiful woman and she has a beautiful daughter and sometimes it's just not fair. So there you have it. And I, I close as I normally do with, with the opium den motto and that is when good people obey bad law, bad law never changes. <laughs>